This is Business Breakdowns. Business Breakdowns is a series of conversations with investors and operators diving deep into a single business. For each business, we explore its history, its business model, its competitive advantages, and what makes it tick. We believe every business has lessons and secrets that investors and operators can learn from, and we are here to bring them to you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns, check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts, podcast guests, their employers, or affiliates may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Zach Fuss, an investor at Irenic Capital, and today we are breaking down Trader Joe's. Trader Joe's is not a typical grocery chain. Their stores offer less choice, very few brands, constantly changing product lines, and no online option. Yet, they are adored and highly profitable. Their MPS score is industry-leading, and from what we can tell, despite offering lower prices, they generate more revenue per square foot than any dedicated grocery store in the market. To break down Trader Joe's, I'm joined by Christina Berta-Jones, a longtime e-commerce and grocery investor who is now building an online supermarket business called Picnic. Together, we unpack the elements that have made this private grocery chain so successful for such a long period of time. Please enjoy this business breakdown of Trader Joe's. Christina, thank you for joining us to break down Trader Joe's. We're tremendously excited to talk about this massively popular business. I thought a good place to start would be to compare and contrast Trader Joe's to the conventional grocery store supermarket. So I'll let you kick it off there. Super. Really excited to talk about this. Trader Joe's is my favorite business to talk about for a number of reasons. It is one of the most formidable formats, I think, in grocery retail. If you start from the broad strokes, they've come up with what is, and certainly was at a time, but still is today, I think, a very hard to replicate, unique, extremely successful format in the US. And they're obviously a private business, so it's quite hard to be certain on numbers. But at least from what I know, they operate a business that's well worth north of $15 billion in sales, which makes them a fairly large grocery retailer. Of course, not anything of the size of a Kroger or Walmart. So in the nature of the format, I suppose they are not mass market supermarkets. So in that sense, they'll probably never be of that size, but they're tremendously profitable. So the business itself, in terms of the turnover per square foot, they're well above four or five times the average supermarket, somewhere north of $1,800 a square foot, which is, at least from what I recall, even compared to a Whole Foods, something like twice as much. They are able to sell far more square foot. That is a product of, on one hand, much smaller physical format. So they have about 10,000 square feet, whereas a regular supermarket grocery store would have 30,000 plus on average. But they also, and I think this is probably the most important part, they operate far fewer products. They have about 4,000 SKUs, stock keeping units, whereas a regular supermarket would have an average of 30 some thousand, though I think many of the large formats, Kroger's and such go well over 50,000 SKUs. 
if you then drill into the economics, that then becomes one of the main reasons why they're able to be so efficient, because they literally have to only worry about buying, marketing, shelving, storing, handling 4,000 products, as opposed to what a regular supermarket does. It is only private brands, as you know, so they don't buy other large CPG company brands. They only sell their own brand and they buy that directly from the source, from the vendors, from the manufacturers. So there's no middleman. But that's the highlight. So Christina, I think a really helpful way to frame this conversation would be to provide a bit of an overview on the food retail market. How big of an end market are we talking about? Where does Trader Joe's fit into the picture in terms of size and scale and capabilities? So maybe just start there and frame the industry for our listeners. It's a fascinating industry and we could go on for a while because it is actually amazingly beautiful in its detail. And that's our big picture. If you look at certainly the US grocery market, it's well over 800 billion or so in sales. It is extremely fragmented, certainly relative to most European country standards. It is, let's say Kroger's, for example, the largest pure play in the business. Of course, Walmart also plays in grocery, but Kroger, let's say the largest retail grocery chain, it's about 150 billion or so. They have less than 20% of that grocery market and then everybody else is far smaller than that. Trader Joe's and in general, let's call them these more specialty retail formats. And I'd include the discounters like Aldi and Lidl. They're still even smaller. So Aldi, and I think these are all private companies, so it's a bit hard to know for sure, but Aldi is estimated to sell well over 40 billion. So they're still, let's say, sizable. But Trader Joe's, it's about 15 billion. It's a tiny business in the greater scheme of things as far as the total market goes. But it is tremendously profitable. If I try to compare, it's all a bit based on various data points that I've cobbled together over the years. But in a study that was done on, let's say, the hard discounter model versus the grocery model, the research points to a good gap of, say, one and a half, two points of difference in EBIT margin between a traditional grocer and a hard discounter. On top of that, I'd say, and that would mean, for example, if you take Kroger's EBIT margin around 3.3, at best, that basically means that if that's right, a hard discounter like Aldi and Little are probably able to make 5% or so in an EBIT margin. Trader Joe's, because they sell higher-end merchandise, I'll get into that in a second because it is a fascinating part about certainly how they've built the business, really focusing on high value per cubic meter, if you will. I can only imagine that they can do even better than that. So let's say that if that number is more like 6 or 7% versus the 5% that I'm assuming for an Aldi or a Lidl, that would basically make Trader Joe's a business that generates about or over a billion in profit every year. It's a very attractive business. Of course, everybody focuses on a percent margins in grocery and they all know they're super thin. But as you know, it's an annuity business on a large revenue numbers. The cash flows and the profits are very attractive, which is, I guess, why it's interesting to be in the business and certainly interested to be a Trader Joe's in this business. They generate far more profit and far more sales per square meter 
than I think pretty much anybody else in the world, save for maybe some Japanese retailers that maybe take the cake on efficiency per square meter. I'm sure we're going to talk about all the specific nuances and areas and differences, but to just bring a store to life for our audience, most of the stores are organized in fairly comparable ways. But can you talk about the different sections of the store and the layout and how people should perceive what shopping at Trader Joe's is like? I'll give it a shot. And I think it's obviously quite hard to describe in words, but maybe where I'll start is that you walk in and you don't feel like you're in a grocery store. So you don't have the neon lighting and the big long aisles with lots of different numbers and signage. You feel like you're entering a far more small independent grocery store. The layout is not really standard. I think most Trader Joe's that I've walked into fit the building that they're in. The one in Boston that I used to shop at, a very different store and layout than the one in Brooklyn that I recall. They're typically not out of the city center or somewhere too far off in a commercial space. So they do pick different stores to start with. They're actually very careful about store selection. Certainly, that has a lot to do with how profitable these stores are because they try their best to pick the biggest density for their demographic which is what they call the well-traveled, but not well-paid, educated professional. So they thrive around university campuses, et cetera, in these big buildings that have a lot more soul to them. So you walk in and you don't feel like you're in a grocery store. A lot of the signage is on sort of chalkboards with cute little drawings. As they say, they flatter the customers vocabularily and tickle their minds. They do try to make puns be witty, both in the way they name their products, but also in the way that they put up the signage in the store. The assistants in the store, they all have their famous Hawaiian shirts, very laid back, conversational, talkative, helpful. In a way, they've made it into the unsupermarket, if you will. They've taken everything that I think most of us don't enjoy about large grocery stores and they've changed it. They've just made it fun. Yeah. Two of the things that jump out to me are the Hawaiian shirts on their staff members. And also the fact that if you don't like something, they want you to return it. They literally encourage their shoppers to sample. They're known in many ways for all the innovative, unique, differentiated snacks and offerings they have. So it's definitely a unique shopping experience. How many stores are there and how does that compare to some of the other large-scale food retailers? Trader Joe's has a far smaller footprint of about 500 stores relative to, say, a Kroger that's close to 3,000. So it's a far smaller retail footprint than most grocery chains in the U.S. I think, if I recall correctly, they open one or two stores a year, which is a very slow pace even compared to, for example, Aldi in the U.S., They go very small and steady. They are looking to make all of their stores profitable. They're very ruthless about, in many cases, if they happen to be in the wrong location or the store is just not working out in not keeping a store that isn't profitable. I would love to see any of their figures, but I'd assume that this is a tremendously well-run cash generative business because they're extremely careful with their cash and they're extremely careful in how they expand. And I think their cash flow management, certainly given the number of SKUs they operate and given the control they have on the supply chain, has to be one of the best in the industry. I would love to know more. Trader Joe's at this point is a 55-year-old business, which had pretty grassroots beginnings and has expanded into a major player in the food retail industry. 
What are some of the most interesting parts of the history of Trader Joe's? I'll try to go through the highlights that at least stick in my mind. Joe Coulomb, who's the founder of Trader Joe's, actually was in the retail business before Trader Joe's with a convenience store chain called Pronto Markets. He was only, I think, in his mid-20s, 26 or so, when he basically got to run this venture started by Rexall, which was then a drugstore chain looking to get into the then booming market for convenience stores in the late 1950s. So he starts running this business and builds it into a fairly large chain in Orange County. And it's sometimes the mid-60s where, of course, the competitive pressure in the business and certainly 7-Eleven as a chain grows and puts pressure on pronto markets. So Rexall decides to throw in the towel and says, we've had it with this business. CPG companies are obviously exacting big margins and have high leverage over all these retailers. So it's not a great business to be in. They decide to exit. And at that time, Joe has a decision to make. And interestingly enough, and fortuitously enough, and it obviously comes back in the famous Hawaiian shirts, but apparently he takes an extensive Caribbean holiday. And he essentially tries to decide, do I stick with this business somehow, find a way to buy it out, stay on as a CEO? I kind of know what I would do different if I owned this. But at the same time, obviously, the choice is there to just bail and do something completely new. Lucky for, I guess, all of us, he decides to stick with it. He gets a bank loan from, I believe, Bank of America to fund him in this buyout. We know a lot about the business. It's an incredible story. It seems like he's learned a lot. How did he apply those lessons to Trader Joe's? He essentially takes on Pronto Markets and starts basically changing everything about it that he thought didn't work. And it started with certainly the knowledge and the experience that if you're going to be beholden to the large consumer product goods brands and you're going to be in a price war with the next guy always watching competition, you're never going to be able to make enough money in this for it to be a good business and certainly a fun business to run. So goes back to the drawing board and starts thinking about, hey, what would be a business that wouldn't be subject to all of those, let's say, very obvious issues that he was looking to run away from? At the same time, I think he picks up a couple of magazines to read up on this. I think one of them was the Scientific American, in which They talk about how certainly the GI Bill has created this boom in educated people that were all of a sudden, let's say, causing a big demographic shift in the U.S. at that time. While at the same time, the Boeing 747 basically democratized overseas travel. So you always end up with this well-educated, well-traveled, but not always well-paid class that's growing. So he zeroes in on this demographic shift and then digs into, let's say, finding all of these categories in which he could get an advantage. So I don't think he necessarily sets out to build what we know today as Trader Joe's, but he starts out, I believe, with wine as one category where he finds just by studying the sourcing of wine that you could certainly get an advantage by playing the intricacies of regulation by importing wine, by pricing it and getting an advantage in basically selling what is still a very high price per cubic meter category. So he kind of starts with wine and then he has the obvious epiphany that at the end of the day, 
everything can be like wine. Nothing is a true commodity. So vitamins, supplements, coffee, and basically starts building a business category by category by really looking into the supply and the sources of these goods and going all the way to the source and finding ways to find best product. And sometimes what I think he called odd lots, where of course, again, the large grocery stores had no interest in ranging something that was an odd lot, would run out of assortment, and then they would have to deal with replacing it. For the larger grocery chains, this was not interesting. But of course, at the scale that Trader Joe's was at the time, it became very interesting to buy these lots at often very, very low prices. So I remember at some point there was a lot of apparently large or extra large size eggs that were much cheaper than the regular size eggs. But none of the grocery chains wanted them because they're sort of an odd lot. They couldn't source regular supply of that kind. So he kind of makes a business into finding these, let's call them odd lots, and really capitalizing on regulations and on basically pricing and sourcing advantages that he could find, building basically category by category a business in which I think he was able to not only make good margin and not be subject to competition and sort of having to price match, but of course, he picks categories that are all very high price per cubic meter. So of course, he can use then small footprint stores to have a very large turnover, which lasts to this day in the economics of Trader Joe's. It was, again, a very counterintuitive move at the time where all the other grocery retailers, including his former employer, Pronto Markets, were looking to squeeze labor costs in order to basically survive in what was a very high-pressure business on one side, obviously not getting much from the brands and getting squeezed by the brands, and on the other, of course, by labor costs. So everybody else was in the business of reducing that labor cost. And of course, that causes a lot of turnover and a lot of other, let's call them indirect costs. He sets out to basically do that all different. And he starts paying very high wages relative to competition. That allows him to get the best employees to keep them to basically be able to run a much higher service business. And he made it a bit his challenge then to find, let's say, high margin categories that he could sell to basically make the numbers work. So it's a very different approach from basically everybody else in the market at the time. And I do think I don't know what it is that they do pay today versus the others. And I don't know how much of this original ethos survives. You can imagine that if you start with looking at getting into high margin categories and being able to get product that you can price with good, a good margin, then you know, the ability to play a very different game in the entire business model is obviously very different than when you're having to be subject to price matching and the buying power dynamics that happen with sort of national brands and CPG brands. In the end, it's also a super fascinating founder story where you don't deal with someone who came up with this idea from the start, but rather worked in a business, understood the dynamics, understood why it didn't work, and essentially founded this business through a buyout and a business that he was able to keep private and make very profitable until he sold the business to Aldi much later in time. It always strikes me when you look at the P&L of a supermarket in the US, the margins are incredibly thin. They're businesses that for every $100 you spend at a grocery store, 
they probably keep three to four dollars on average. There's two ways for grocery stores to drive the returns on capital. It's either to have more turnover on their inventory or to have higher margins. And so Trader Joe's, it seems, has had this very intentional strategy to have less SKUs and more turnover. Can we talk about the evolution of private label and why they've been so successful in implementing that strategy and what were the key drivers of it? So if you put it in perspective, any large grocery retailer you'd look at in the US today has trade marketing budgets, which they essentially receive from the large brands that far exceed their EBITDA margins. They are very, very dependent on trade marketing money to make their business model work. To step back indeed at the innovation that was private brand, interestingly enough, when Joe was at the time, and I think the time was late 60s, early 70s, thinking about the concept of what then became Trader Joe's, he went back to the origin of the world retail, which came from the French word tailler, which basically means to cut a small piece from a larger one. So essentially to buy wholesale and buy the product and then package it, sell it to end consumers. Obviously very different than buying wholesale, a whole bunch of already packaged branded products. And at that time, I guess the other fortuitous circumstance, which certainly turned him on to not only the business model that would power Trader Joe's, but also to the target market, was that the Boeing 747, which I think was launched also in the early 70s, made it really cheap and easy to travel to Europe. So that meant both for consumers to go and have vacations and be well-traveled was a lot more accessible to a middle class. That certainly wasn't the case before. But also then to have buyers going directly to Europe to meet with the makers of the mozzarella cheese that are looking to buy or the French wine that they're looking to source became much more of a feasible option. So he really took that idea of, hey, I'm going to become a genuine retailer. I'm going to just go and buy the best stuff from wherever it's made. And I'm going to become a buying agent for customers as opposed to make money from brands. So I'm going to make money from customers. I'm not going to take money from brands because I've seen that game. It's a tough one. You get squeezed in the middle. You become dependent on these brands. So he really sets out to say, I'm going to go find the best for the best price. I'm going to test it irrespective of margin. I'm just going to pick what I think will sell the best. And that will make me much more competitive than anything that goes through a long value chain that by the time it gets to the consumer, not only adds a whole bunch of costs, but I think gets quite divorced from this focus a very artisanal way of thinking about buying. So having buyers that were experts in the category and obsessed with finding the best source for the product. I think it's maybe a good opportunity to talk about the difference in the US grocery market versus Europe, because they have evolved quite differently. In the US, it's kind of dominated by Kroger, by Walmart, to an extent, Costco and Amazon trying to have a presence. I know the concept of hard discounters is prolific in Europe. Can you explain what a hard discounter is and help our American audience to better appreciate how groceries are sold throughout the world? The history here is certainly important. And I do think that geography probably plays a role here. So as you know, in Europe, you're dealing with much more dense populations. The ability to reach a market or a national market is certainly something much easier for a retailer to do than what you have in the U.S. In the U.S., just by the nature of physical distance, 
being able to supply from the East Coast to the West Coast, certainly over time made it more feasible to have distribution centers that are all over the country, respective retail grocery chains that grow up around those distribution points. In Europe, because the distances are smaller, and I think the ability for a retailer then to have nationwide coverage is obviously much easier in most countries. In most of these countries, these retail environments became a lot more consolidated. So in Europe, you're dealing with, and there's an index, I forget specifically the name of it, but essentially measures the concentration of retail in these grocery markets. In Europe, I think Switzerland is one of the most concentrated and essentially the top one, two players have something like 90% of the market. In most European markets, that is more 50-60%. But you do have one, two, three players that essentially share the market. They're very large. And they have the scale to then produce their own private label at scale. I think that dynamic was very different and still is very different in the US, where the market is far more fragmented and where the brands themselves, relative to the grocers, are far larger. That may well have had something to do with it. The percentage of private brand in European grocery retail is far higher. It's well over 40% in most retailers, where I think in the States, it's still in the teens or in the 20s at best. In that environment, Aldi and Lidl, uh, at the time, making this observation that, hey, if we just optimize the store around a minimum number of SKUs, and we don't deal with the whole investment in the actual retail of the store, meaning furniture and lighting and all of the, let's say, the show part of it. And they essentially started with what looked like almost like Costco warehouses. So the American audience would be familiar with that. And it's actually essentially what Costco is doing themselves with their concept, essentially saying, hey, I'm not going to spend much money on the stuff that doesn't add value to customers. I'm going to pick just a few products that I'm going to focus on getting the best product for the best price. And I'm going to put all those savings into the cost, into the price of the product. And that's going to make for a much better quality at a lower price that I can sell to consumers. And then the trade-off, of course, is that you have fewer choices, typically only one or two choices of the product as opposed to dozens or sometimes in US supermarkets, you'd see a full wall of different yogurt choices. I think that, of course, is much reduced in a hard discounter that definitely saves on labor and on handling what is a far smaller set of products. Also, even selling them out of the actual box that they come into the store without then the labor of taking it and arranging it on the shelf. So quite a few savings in a model that operates of a much more reduced set of products that are made directly with the manufacturer. So with no brand sitting in the middle and also no marketing money competing for shelf space. You made reference earlier to trade spend. And I think that that's a concept that for industry participants like yourself is obviously readily apparent. But for people that walk the stores, they don't necessarily understand how that works and how it contributes to the profitability of a brick and mortar grocery store. Can you talk a little bit more about the differing strategies on those slotting fees or trade spend as they're referred to? In a nutshell, any large consumer product goods company would associate and accompany their products in terms of a deal that they make to sell a certain product line in a certain volume with a certain percentage of money that will just be earmarked towards promotion of that product. Whether that goes into actual discounts on the product or that goes into highlighting that product into in various marketing that the store itself does 
that all is basically there to promote the product. It comes part of the financial arrangement that any grocery retailer makes with a brand. And it's probably one of the largest and most interesting parts of the negotiation with the brand. But it does oblige the retailer to indeed put that product in a certain position on the shelf, to have it on promotion in certain weeks of the year, the degree to which it does so. And all of that is all covered by this marketing spend. So in a way, in a nutshell, you could argue that in this business relationship, the consumer product goods companies are using retailers as distributors of their product. And essentially, they pay for play as opposed to necessarily, and I think that's maybe where the Trader Joe's model, and indeed, if you look at what Aldi and Lidl do, is interesting because they basically say, well, we're going to do none of that. We're not going to be a distributor of other people's products. You're basically auctioning off shelf space and you're presenting the consumer with far more choices than I think they can even usefully make. I think there's a famous study that essentially proves that anything more than six choices in a product makes it far harder to choose. And I think that's where the hard discounters and in the Trader Joe's basically said, hey, we're going to make this good for the consumer, meaning we're not going to overwhelm them with choice. We're just going to pick best quality for the lowest price, perhaps give one or two quality tiers or flavors or choices in that sense. But we're not going to overload the product and the price with essentially what is marketing budget. What you see is that these private brand products, and certainly what Lidl and Aldi and Trader Joe's have been able to do, is to supply products of the same quality benchmark that is coming in at a far lower price, because they're essentially skipping that whole marketing element of it. And of course, also their store model is far more efficient to operate. So it requires far less labor to operate because they put fewer SKUs on the shelf and the retail environment itself is far less labor intensive. The point you make around operating costs is interesting. And we haven't spent a lot of time talking about how they're able to save on their operations. We talked about the idea that you can bring pallets onto the store floor, labor model, dealing with perishables. But is there anything inherently different about the way that Trader Joe's operates their stores that allows them to reinvest those savings back into lower prices for their customers? Labor is certainly the big one. The other big one is marketing. Trader Joe's admirably have built a brand that is probably one of the strongest brands in retail without any advertising. So they've not done TV advertising. The closest they've come to do traditional advertising is their fearless flyer, direct marketing that is just sent by mail to customers. And I think they've done a little bit of radio ads, but they've essentially said the brand experience happens in the store. We're going to transmit everything we want to say and consumers to feel about our brand in the store. And we're going to skip the whole expense of marketing because we're just going to make such good products. And they put a really high hurdle on what is a good product. They always insist that it is the lowest price by far in that category, that it has a superior flavor, that it has a point of view. Actually, much like Costco, they do have a very high bench for what the product should be. The store itself is also in concept designed to be a lot less formal and a lot more fun than most other stores are. And essentially that for them is marketing. So they skip that entire cost line, which is, of course, a very big one in addition to labor for most grocery stores. If you think about the mix of basket, does it compare differently to a traditional grocer in the way that their consumers shop it? 
I think that is the difference between certainly what I'd call today a mass market supermarket or grocery retailer and Trader Joe's. At the end of the day, Trader Joe's is still a niche retail format. I think there are people that perhaps can live off of just Trader Joe's or mainly Trader Joe's as their only grocery store. But I think for most people, Trader Joe's is an additional second or third grocery store that they use for getting the delicacies, the cheeses, the special flavors, the products that only Trader Joe's makes so well. And that actually competes so well with what they could alternatively find in grocery stores. But I think most consumers wouldn't do what is called a full basket shop at Trader Joe's. Everything from their daily consumption of dairy and meats, etc. So I do think that it is still a niche concept relative to a general grocery store. Maybe this is a good segue to talk about the impact of the pandemic on the way that consumers shop grocery. What we've seen across publicly traded grocery businesses is that margins have expanded, sales per square foot have increased, and the way that customers shop have changed a bit. And so maybe one of the things that would be interesting to talk about is just the way that grocery delivery impacts potentially Trader Joe's, Aldi, Lidl, Kroger, the impact of a business like Ocado. Grocery in particular is a very dynamic space right now. And so I'd kind of love to hear some of the themes that are impacting Trader Joe's barriers to entry and their core competencies. I think that's a really fun discussion. And actually, you may recall, and I forget exactly when this was, but it was a little while back that I think Trader Joe's essentially declared, hey, we're just not going to do online. If you want Trader Joe's, you have to come to our store. And online is not something that we'll even try to do, even in partnership with a third party, like you know, many other grocery stores do. If you look at their business model, and actually, in general, if you have physical retail, in order to build an online component of that, you essentially have to build almost a parallel business because everything about online and about direct delivery from the warehouse, everything from away you receive goods to the way you pick them into orders like you do for an online store is very different than what you have to do in order to serve a network of physical stores where you receive things on pallets, they get sent to the store in pallets, they get, of course, shelved and broken down and put into shelves, but obviously not picked into individual orders. So everything about online is different. If you are a physical store, and you want to do your own online operation, you essentially have to build a parallel operation to do so. There are, of course, options to partner with third parties and such, but leaving that aside, I think it's actually very difficult for any grocery store that has a physical footprint to do their own online business and be able to operate the two profitably side by side. Certainly for Trader Joe's, especially given not only the value and the emphasis they put on the store experience, Everything that they do is so tied into, let's say, what you experience, see, feel, the conversations you have or don't with the folks at the checkout counter. Their differentiation sits in the store experience. So I think for them to then concede to essentially try to support an online model in parallel to that not only goes counter to the core of their advantage as a business, but it's actually super difficult to do and would completely destroy their operational efficiency that they have. So I think it makes a lot of sense. And I think I wouldn't expect them or in fact, any of the hard discounters to build their own online capability because from an operational perspective, there's just no way to be able to provide the same low price 
and to do that online by building essentially a separate operational model in parallel. If you had to opine on how things kind of evolve over the next five to 10 years here, you have these legacy grocery systems, which have massive store footprints, incredible amounts of square footage, incredible amounts of inventory. And so presumably you can run a more efficient store if you don't open it up to your consumers to walk the shelves, but then you have to introduce the incremental costs associated with staffing, with shrinkage, which is something that we haven't really spoken about all the costs associated with running these businesses. It seems like we're at a pretty interesting pivot point for someone like Trader Joe's, which can continue to lean into price. How do consumers stride towards where and how they're going to shop? I do see that there's a fork in the road of sorts where you either make that shopping experience truly unique and enjoyable. You may even go far more into providing a solution for dinner for your consumers, like, for example, Wegmans does. I think second to Trader Joe's, that's probably my next favorite business, certainly in the U.S. grocery landscape. Wegmans has basically taken that idea. They are obviously a full-service supermarket grocery store with A brands and their own private label brands. But importantly, they've invested, and I think they have a unique differentiation, which I think is very sustainable, in essentially providing prepared meal solutions for their consumers. So you walk into any Wegmans and the first third of the store, it's just an amazing array of all kinds of choices of any cuisine you can think of that you can pick up for dinner. You look at their fish and their sushi and it's as fresh as it would be from your sushi store around the corner. From that perspective, I do think there's a future for grocery retail in becoming indeed a quick stop of a ready meal that you could pick up and essentially serve right away. And let's say if you invest in that and in the sensorial experience of being in the store and being delighted, certainly, for example, if you go into Wegmans, being in their produce section is a joy just because there's just so much even to learn. They have boards in which they explain to you the difference between a serrano and a jalapeno pepper or the different kind of herbs there are. And they just make it all fun the same way that Trader Joe's does. And I think that will always be appealing because at the end of the day, online, certainly when it comes to mass market and when it comes to profitability, I think it's very hard to replicate that kind of immediacy that you can have by just walking into a store like a Wegmans or a Trader Joe's and picking up a prepared meal. So I do see that's a very appealing route to the future for physical retail. I think for online, because as I described, it's very hard to do the two side by side very well and profitably. And I guess I am biased here. That's the disclaimer. But I do think that building then an online grocery store, a pure play that is dedicated to providing the best experience that it can being an online provider is the only way to actually make that business a good one and a profitable one. I think there are definitely going to be all kinds of solutions in between. You see today the grocery stores partnering with the Instacarts, the DoorDashes of the world to do the delivery part. But I'm not sure that looking five, 10 years out is sustainable. So I do think that there's going to be a bit of a fork in the road and there'll be pure plays or let's say branches of large businesses like Kroger does today, investing in their, their online businesses with a huge capital expense and a long-term horizon. I think maybe the other thing to state, and it's sort of obvious, but it's important to remember, most consumers shop one or two or even more grocery stores habitually, whether that's in the week or in the month. So I don't see it as a zero sum. 
I do actually think that there'll be things that consumers will like to pick up in the store and they'll enjoy doing so, or they'll be in a rush to get dinner on the table and then ordering it online is not an option. But then there's also the other part where the less appealing, maybe more monotone part of grocery shopping is far better done like we do today with everything else that we order on Amazon. We'd rather do it by ordering in a few clicks on your phone and not spending the time essentially picking from a large warehouse and putting everything in a basket and carrying it home when that provides no particular joy to do so. It's funny, when it comes to consumer retail, typically Amazon comes up in the first five minutes of a conversation. (laughs) But despite the fact that Amazon acquired Whole Foods, Trader Joe's has continued to grow and most likely gain market share. Although as a private company, we can't be certain. What has differentiated them from the ability to fight back against Amazon's entry into Whole Foods? It's kind of a different customer, but I presume there is some overlap. The 365 brand at Whole Foods is incredibly strong on private label, but Trader Joe's seems to be able to continue to keep customers and gain share. Is there anything about the business model you think that affords them that luxury or privilege? The most important thing that I think there is to learn and to admire about Trader Joe's is their buying organization. From the beginning, they've set out to say, hey, we're going to get the best buyers dedicated to a particular product or product category, and we're going to enable them to be the best in the business, fly to Europe or wherever they need to go to find the best stuff, be virtually obsessed with all the nuances of that product and what might be the next big trend or the next big thing, the nutrition, the regulation, the distribution, the packaging around it. If you take that product obsession and then you're able to focus a buyer when you're not dealing with so many products on really obsessing about a product, I think you get a tremendously different product quality and price ratio than you would if you're just a buyer looking across dozens of products, dealing with retail partners, etc., I say this a bit based on what I've read about Trader Joe's, but for them, apparently it's not uncommon to spend six months plus to work with a vendor and figure out the actual product and product formulation and set up a way of working together. Whereas the price negotiation is a 10-minute discussion because they're so deep into not only finding the best partners and the best vendors, but then they get so interconnected, if you will, that that relationship, which is far more arm's length and I think is far more distant for many other buyers in a typical grocery retail store is a very intimate one because there's a lot of attention on that one particular vendor. And I don't know what the ratio is. I don't know how many such vendors one buyer Trader Joe handles, but I'd assume is far less than any other store, including Whole Foods. So I do think that buying at the end of the day and let's say formulating, picking product and making sure that you have the best there is is what makes Trader Joe's stand out. And I don't see any other store, including Whole Foods, making that kind of effort. I think maybe Wegmans comes close, but again, they operate a very different format where they have to provide far larger assortment with far more options and far more work, I think, for a buyer, even at Whole Foods or at Wegmans than what Trader Joe's does. So I think that focus is essentially their their forte, and I don't see anybody beating them at that. We've talked about trade spend, which is unique to grocery stores. The other one I want to spend a little bit of time on thinking through is shrinkage, which essentially covers loss of perishables and theft. Does Trader Joe's do anything particularly unique there that allows them to either have less shrink or 
better margins than their peers. The only thing I can think of is just less SKUs means better inventory management. But I was wondering if you knew anything specific about Trader Joe's. Yeah, I think that's the big one. If you indeed operate your SKUs and you know your SKU so well, you know exactly not only what to order and how fast it'll turn, but you can also turn it much faster than you do if you operate more SKUs. I'd expect that the ability to go from getting product in to getting it on the store shelf and then whatever then you have to net out to things that inevitably break or get spoiled, that number has to be far smaller for Trader Joe's than it is for any other store that's trying to do that with far more products. Importantly, that has far more handovers, if you will, between the source where was it picked. Like for example, in fresh product, it would go through some sort of a distributor wholesaler network to even get received by that grocery store. So in that sense, if you then, let's say, own your own supply chain end-to-end, which actually very few companies can do. Wegmans is the other, by the way, that owns its own distribution and wholesale and is able to get as many pieces of that chain, if you will, dropped because they can go direct as much as possible. That is probably one of the biggest reasons I would think that shrinkage has to be much smaller a percent of, of lost sales at Trader Joe's than it is in any other store. You're asking earlier about basket. I don't know the figures, but I'd expect that sort of the percentage of fresh produce in a Trader Joe's basket is far smaller than it is in a general regular grocery store. A lot of the wastage that, of course, as you know, coming from having to put tomatoes, apples, etc., on the shelf and never run out, uh, inevitably means that you'll have to throw some of it out because you can never run out of products. You always have to have the shelves stacked with product. That inevitably means there's a lot of waste that comes from that. Conceivably, the purposeful decision not to have a butcher counter, a fish counter, where a lot of the perishables sit and likely are fairly labor-intensive and presumably somewhat low margin would be my guess. The point you brought up about distribution is an interesting one. So Trader Joe's self-distributes from what you understand. Can you talk a little bit about how that is different from some of the other retailers and food retailers? I say that a bit assuming what Trader Joe's does, there's not really a way to be certain. But indeed, if you're handling as few SKUs as they are, and they're able to almost work backwards from, hey, I have this piece of cheese that I'm trying to import into the US, and I'm trying to get it from Italy all the way to the store in the most efficient way possible, they're essentially able to do that. Whereas any other grocery store would deal with another party that would bring that cheese into the US and then have to send it on to either a wholesale network, working through one of the wholesalers, adding at least a few more handovers in between, as well as time, which is not unimportant. So for the same piece of mozzarella, I'd expect that if you're a regular grocery store buying it from another brand that makes this, you're dealing with a far longer chain. It takes far longer. It's far less fresh. And it obviously is much costlier than what Trader Joe's can do. Christina, as someone who is building a grocery-oriented business, I would love to learn the lessons that you take away from the Trader Joe's story and apply uh, to your own business. And then as an extension of that, as an investor, as a capital allocator yourself, some of the things that investors can learn when assessing a business like Trader Joe's as well? I say it starts with this core idea of essentially being a genuine retailer and being a buying agent for your customer and not working for the large brands, but rather creating products for your customer. 
I think that is probably the most powerful piece that you take away, certainly as a consumer of Trader Joe's. But if I look at their business and I think about what it would take to make a comparably attractive business, I think building products like Trader Joe's is something that I aspire to. Building a brand like they have with as little advertising as they have through the actual shopping experience. Whether that's online or physical, I think it doesn't matter, but essentially building brands through experience and building brand through what you do, not what you say, not the amount of money that you spend on commercials and TV ads, but rather on just delivering a really amazing experience to customers. And that is the best and most reliable way to build a strong brand. And I'd say lastly, their buying organization and their buying process. I think there's a lot to learn there especially if you think about making your own product in collaborating with vendors. If I recall correctly, and I think it is a striking observation because of course you would expect Joe Colomb at the time to say, well, I was a very customer-focused business and I build this business around the customer. But he actually says, the most important person in my business is actually the buyer. The customer is not always right. They're actually kind of amateurs. They know what they like and they don't like, but they have very little judgment and understanding of how to serve their own demographic. So actually building a buying organization that is second to none is probably the third most important element of the business model. Looking in their business is probably those three things that I'd say are the most admirable and also the ones where I feel it's very hard to see how somebody can beat them at their own game. And certainly they've been out there now for some time and I haven't seen anyone successfully replicating them, which just goes to show that I think these things are obviously built over time and it takes some decades, which is why I also think the grocery retail business is so interesting. And I think what they've done is actually quite hard to quickly copy and do as well as they do now that they've been at it for so many decades. Thank you so much. Grocery... Is such a fascinating category. If you consider the complexities and the capital intensity of running such a business that only gets to keep one, two, three, four percent of every dollar they sell, it's certainly a challenging business. And the way that Trader Joe's has been able to consistently grow their business at such attractive returns, or at least our perception of such, has been fascinating. So thank you for joining us and helping us to break down this business. My pleasure. To find more episodes of breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com.